We think that investors are actually taking more risk than they perhaps expect at times with their investment grade allocations if they mimic an index. Um, one tends to take more duration and more credit risk uh, and not a lot of spread at times given some of the high quality assets that are in those indices. Uh, in the current environment when credit spreads are very tight and when you don't have that tailwind from declining yields or interest rates like we had last year, those two things might not work in your favor next year. So maybe somewhat counterintuitively, we would argue that now is the right time to be adding things like ABS and CMBS and and CLO debt and EM corporate debt as a way to diversify and improve the structure of your portfolio. That was David Nagel, and this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode two of season two of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in-depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, real estate, and more. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, so the latest episode is in your podcast queue every other week. So on today's show, I spoke with David Nagel, a portfolio manager within Bearings Investment Grade Fixed Income Group. With more than 30 years of industry experience, Dave has seen more than a few cycles, so he is particularly well-placed to help put today's fixed-income markets in context. In the conversation, we talked about why investors may be taking more risk than they think in so-called sleep-at-night investment-grade strategies, especially given tight credit spreads and interest rate risk. We also talked about the pros and cons of including asset classes like CLOs, ABS, and EM debt in an investment-grade allocation, particularly given today's macro backdrop. And finally, we discussed what could go wrong this year in the world of investment-grade credit. And as the coronavirus has just reminded us, it's often the things that we expect the least. And with that, please enjoy this conversation with David Nagel. Okay, David Nagel, welcome back to the show. Hi, Greg. I want to start out by recognizing that investors today face a conundrum. So credit markets rallied aggressively to end 2019 especially, and that strength continued into January. Um, Outside of the very recent volatility that we've seen around the coronavirus, that's left many parts of the credit markets, including investment-grade corporate credit, uh, looking expensive by some measures. Investors, however, have a problem. They need to own investment-grade credit, typically, as part of a core allocation. Um, So the question I'd like to discuss with you, Dave, is, you know, how can they do that in such a way that they can, A, potentially generate an attractive return, and B, hopefully achieve really what a core investment-grade allocation is trying to do, which is adding some diversification, hopefully dampening down some volatility. But before we get to all that, rewind with me for a second back to 2019. Tell me. How did we get here? So what happened in 2019 in these markets, investment-grade credit in particular, that got us to where we are today? What were the big drivers? Which asset classes performed the best? And then how has that led us to where we are today, early 2020? Sure. Well, start by saying 2019 was a, was a fantastic year for a lot of investors, but especially IG ones as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an interesting year in the sense that it sort of started with a with a, a run in the mm-hmm, first part mm-hmm. uh, on the heels of the terrible volatility storm we had in the f- quarter before that. Took a breather in the mid-year, 
uh, when growth sort of slowed down both here but more so overseas. And then, as you mentioned already, ramped up again with a pretty aggressive risk-on rally in the back half of the year. Um, everything contributed last year, so it's hard to find things that didn't do well in the IG space. Um, rates played a big part of it. Uh, we know treasury yields came down, but also credit spreads tightened. So that's another way of saying valuations got more dear or more rich. Um, so in the end, uh, it was a little bit of everything that worked well. And at the end of the day, it was all about the fact that we didn't end up in that recession that we all perhaps mm. feared mm-hmm. was was right around the corner in the in the early summer time frame. And it just never happened. I know kind of, I guess, negotiating the rate backdrop was a challenge last year. Uh, negotiating uh, the bifurcation that we saw in different parts of the credit markets. Well, I guess what was for you the biggest surprise you saw last year in credit markets? I think it was just a willingness to buy into the fact that the Fed could make things better, if you will. You know, it's been a long time since we had a recession. We're, mm-hmm. we're now in the longest running expansion we've had. Uh, and and even, even now, people are willing to, uh, to look forward and not back. And yeah. so it took only three quick um, cuts on the federal funds rate. And uh, it seemed like investors were willing to, to put that recession behind them and move into uh, a risk-on mode again into the year end. And so... Uh, the optimism, I think, is uh, is surprising. I guess when we think about an investment-grade allocation, when most people think about that, they think about U.S. Treasuries, they think about investment-grade corporates. Uh, if they're talking about a core plus type strategy, they may add some uh, mortgage-backed securities to the mix. They also typically think about managing to a benchmark, like the Barclays Ag. Uh, one of the problems, though, potentially with that is if you get in a situation where you are, like today, where you've got credit spreads looking pretty tight. You arguably, I guess, have the potential for less of a rate tailwind than you had last year. Um, And, you know, if things go in the wrong direction, you could, investors could potentially be facing a situation where they're looking at losses uh, from their IG allocation, which is supposed to be the quote unquote sleep at night part of their portfolio. So, um, you know, how, how do you think about that? And how are you thinking about that type of risk? Well, I think what you're getting at is, is you know, where are we in the cycle? And uh, I would say most of us would agree we're, we're mid to, to late cycle. And to your point, you know, IG is, is that part of a typical investor's portfolio where you want to be at that stage in the cycle, up in quality, shorter, safer, all that stuff. That said, you have to generate return going forward. So, you know, what are we going to do this year? It's a good question. Um, I think most of us came into the new year with a sense that the Fed was probably on hold, an extended hold perhaps that uh, if anything, they would allow rates to go lower if needed, but hard to see um, how rates can go higher from here. Mm -hmm. And so with that asymmetric bias towards lower rates, you might get a little tailwind from rates, but it probably wouldn't be a big one. What we've probably learned, though, to your point about uh, coming into 2020, the first couple of weeks were a massive rally, but then this virus has very quickly reminded us of of what we typically have to be worried about, and that's what we don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, no one a month Mm -hmm. ago when we were reading all of the the 2020 Mm -hmm. forecast reports Mm -hmm. had coronavirus on the top of the Uh, list. It wasn't even on the list. That's right. I have to admit, in our 2020 podcast Outlook episodes, I don't believe coronavirus was... Was a concern that came up. No, and, and you know, then you add to that the uh, you know the death of Suleimani and, and the kind of the tapering down of of uh, fears mm-hmm. between U.S. and Iran. And uh, and look, in, in a matter of a couple of weeks, uh, we went from two things that one that we thought was going to be massive to maybe not so much, mm-hmm. and the other one mm-hmm. we didn't even know about is suddenly potentially got a very meaningful drag on growth uh, worldwide and maybe here in the U.S. And so. Uh, you got to be pretty flexible at switching your uh, your views here. Yeah. So if you're thinking about managing an overall 
investment grade allocation, right? Tell me about the the rationale for looking outside of the traditional corporates and and, and sticking close with the Barclays Ag. Yeah, so we've been, as you know, an opponent, if you will, of of that idea that staying close to the index or an index is is necessarily safe. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the ag is is a good example of one where you end up getting a lot of interest rate risk and a lot of of low yield, low spread assets if you buy that thing. Um, So we've been a proponent of broadening the the credit box, deepening Mm -hmm. the credit Mm -hmm. box, if Mm -hmm. you will, expanding your your opportunity set, especially in high grade, where there are more than just one type of asset, if you will, that all is is generally high quality and generally fairly safe. So there's a lot of reasons to think about diversifying um, across the IG space. Um, Yield is an obvious one. Mm -hmm. Safety Mm -hmm. is another one. Um, But again, at a time when you're you're trying to protect the portfolio, to your point, um, why not take advantage of all those things that offer some diversification? Right. So sticking close to an index may be a riskier strategy, I guess, than... Um, then it appears for sure yeah, on the yeah. surface, right? So what would be some of those other asset classes that you would consider? Yeah, so in our multi-strat portfolios, credit portfolios, we uh, have been a big user of CLO debt, for instance, mm-hmm. for, for some time. Mm-hmm. It's been one of our favorite asset classes for a while now. Um, various parts of the securitized markets, and for us, securitized is typically defined as uh, asset-backed, uh, commercial mortgage-backed, and residential mortgage-backed. So all backed by some sort of receivable, if you will, of um, asset that generates cash flows, but of different types of underlying ultimate source, some mm-hmm. consumer, some business, some some other. Okay. Um, beyond that, the traditional corporate bonds. And then uh, even more and more, we've done the emerging market corporates, um, not so much the sovereigns mm-hmm. and the stuff that you would think of as classic EM, sure. Argentina and Venezuela and stuff like that, but, but other bonds that are issued out of uh, entities not necessarily in the U.S. Okay. I'd like to take each of those one by one because if you start talking about adding CLOs, EM debt, ABS to an investment-grade portfolio, I can imagine that one of the first questions investors would have would be, well, what kind of risks are you then introducing to the portfolio? So from what I understand, these tend to be less efficient asset classes. They uh, can add diversification to a portfolio, add incremental yield opportunities. But maybe let's take some of these one by one. So let's start with CLOs. I mean, that's, uh, I don't know if you would agree, maybe the most, uh, one of the more controversial ones to potentially add to an investment-grade portfolio. It's a, it's a less-trafficked asset class. It's, it's probably a more misunderstood asset class. It's one that's susceptible to negative headlines, as we've just seen in the past couple of weeks. Um, so let's start there. I mean, tell me about the rationale for adding CLOs to an investment-grade allocation. I think we talked about CLOs maybe the last time a year or so ago mm-hmm. in, in some depth. And, and I know I said back then, and this is true of the ABS market as well, mm-hmm. because we feel similarly about that. It's an asset class that I would argue has been developing for quite a while now. And, and CLOs in particular, I would almost say is like the Ronnie Dangerfield of, of asset classes. It just gets no respect. It probably should, <laughs> to be yeah. honest, after such a long period of very reasonable returns, very safe returns, AA, AAA CLOs, never seeing principal defaults, mm-hmm. even through the crisis. Um, you know, this is an asset class, I think, that has earned its stripes. Mm. Um, but you're right. Uh, for whatever reason, it does seem to be underappreciated and maybe underutilized. That said, it always is subject to periodic bouts of volatility, like every asset class. Sure. Yeah. So let's not uh, pretend that it's you know that much worse or, or better mm-hmm. than anything else. But um, And, I, you know, you could argue, I think, at one point that maybe the liquidity was, was a little worse mm-hmm. um, in mm-hmm. certain parts of it as well. But again, in the higher quality spaces, we're very, very comfortable there. So what type of uh, incremental yield opportunity exists there if you look at a CLO versus, I don't know, investment-grade corporate bond? 
Yeah, so so good example. Try to put it in some context. You know, think of a Bank of America, single A kind of classic American uh, financial institution mm-hmm. trades. You know, in a low two percent kind of a yield. Mm. Um, GE, not necessarily a pristine credit anymore like mm-hmm. it used to be, mm-hmm. but kind of a classic triple B industrial in the mid two percent kind of range. Um, so spreads to Treasuries on those respectively would be somewhere around seventy seventy five basis points, and maybe eighty five to ninety basis points. And I'm ballparking there. Okay. Whereas a triple A CLO, which is a floating rate asset, mm-hmm. typically about a five to six year final you know, average life over time, um, today, 110 to 125 basis points. Hmm. So, you know, at least a 50% spread premium mm-hmm. relative to single A and triple B corporates. Hmm. So that's not triple A for triple A. Remember, sure. those are very different yeah. qualities yeah. as well. So you're earning a pretty significant, especially within the investment grade context, yield premium for uh, by owning a higher rated instrument, and you are taking less uh, rate risk as well. Yeah, again, floating rate risk, so it doesn't have the the outright duration that, that mm-hmm. a typical corporate bond would have. Mm-hmm. And it's worth pointing out too that um, you know, as a uh, you know structured security, um, the CLOs don't have one other potentially negative um, side effect of a typical corporate bond or you know other single name like a EM corporate or US corporate and that is what we often refer to as idiosyncratic credit risk. I'm never going to wake up in, in the morning and find out that, that every issue underlying my CLO deal went default sure, last night. Sure, but sure. that can happen to an IG credit. Yeah, so an added level of diversification. Um, I mean, there's, there's risks though involved with CLOs. We saw a little bit of pressure in the credit markets last year. We saw... Um, you know, leveraged loans sell off quite a bit. We saw uh, investor outflows, and I think that was largely related to the moves we saw in, in rate markets. Um, but there are all also concerns that came up last year around credit quality in the underlying loans. There's concerns that have come up again very recently around some of the uh, documentation, not only in the underlying loans, but also in the CLOs themselves. So are you worried about, especially again, an, an investment-grade portfolio adding that type of credit risk because the CLOs are backed by below investment grade. I mean, they're, they're collateralized pools of below investment grade loans. Is that concerning from a credit perspective? Well, you never want to say it's not concerning, right? That's, <laughs> that's just the wrong answer. Yeah. So yes. Um, but, but I think there's a few things that mitigate that for us in, yeah. in a very material way. One, Barings has a, a substantial effort around loans and bonds, both U.S. and Europe. Even this morning at our allocation committee discussions, the high yield team reaffirmed their uh, preference for for loans mm-hmm. uh, as a very attractive asset class. So, and couple that with all of the individual credit research that we have available to us. So, I buy a tranche of loans, but every single loan in that tranche, I have very deep credit research to help me look at those underlying individual right. loans that you that you reference. So. So that's, uh, I think, a huge plus when we're looking at individual deals. Beyond that, last year, as I think you used the word a few minutes ago about bifurcation, we saw a lot of that late cycle fundamental concerns about you know, weaker companies that really manifested last year in the lowest of high yield for a period of time. As we got to year end, though, it seemed to be getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, again, nothing that we're surprised about. That's what you should see late cycle. Sure. Some yep. credits are just going to struggle. Uh, again, it's which ones do you allow in the deals that you buy? Uh, and if you're doing your credit work, hopefully you can you can avoid some of that stuff. Let's talk about ABS. So you and I discussed the growth of ABS markets uh, last time you were on the show. Um, we talked about how you're seeing increasing amount of issuers, increasing amount of buyers, increasing amount of 
sectors. So it, it seems like a space that's really seen a tremendous amount of growth, investor interest, et cetera. Talk to me about that. Again, within this overall context of managing an investment grade allocation. Sure. So we talked about a year ago, uh, similar to CLO, the fact that uh, big parts of the ABS market post-crisis had really developed. So a much deeper buyer base, much broader selling base, much greater support from uh, the street, and then um, just a, a stronger, if you will, buyer base of, of hands, not so much hot money owning this stuff like it used to be, and more traditional mm-hmm. buy and hold type okay. investors, more like ourselves. So that's all the, and that's all continued even through today. So when we're sitting here talking about ABS for us, that generally refers to two very broad classes. One, consumer-oriented deals. Mm -hmm. So backed by collateral that are generally recognized to be consumer-facing or commercial deals, um, which is just what it sounds like. So on the consumer side, the traditional, the very first ABS were backed by credit card receivables Mm -hmm. and automobile loans. Very simple, straightforward consumer transactions. Today, there's still those, um, but to a much greater degree, we now see uh, personal loans. We see subprime loans. So buyers with not very high or prime FICO mm-hmm, scores mm-hmm. instead, um, both in auto deals or, or personal loans, um, student loans, which I think we've talked about as well. So almost any kind of a, of a loan or receivable can be securitized. On, and on the consumer side, again, broader subset of things to do there. In some ways, the bigger growth may have been on the commercial side, where now you can buy Again, asset-backed securities with pools of underlying collateral backed by everything from cell tower, shipping containers, whole business franchise receivables. Uh, so franchise fees off of things like Domino's and <laughs> Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah. Things backed by aviation. Um, that's, one, in fact, one of the sectors we have been buying recently and mm. like very much. Um, so either backed by airplanes or perhaps engines or component parts. Um, very unique, a very detailed research effort mm-hmm, needed mm-hmm. to understand all of those component pieces, whether it be consumer, commercial, or or a jet engine. Sure. Yeah. Um, but again, with with bearings resources, those are the kind of things that we're comfortable doing. And uh, and then I guess you know, in the way we discuss with regards to CLOs, and you know, talking about the, the type of incremental yield you can potentially earn in some of these areas. I mean, what does that look like in the ABS market? Well, I think, again, uh, in the context of a, of a IG broad market or a corporate market that today is kind of yielding somewhere around two to two and a half for better quality, you know, corporate type names that you're all familiar mm-hmm, with, mm-hmm. Um, you start to get into some of these ABS sectors and you can easily generate yields, spreads and yields that are north of two and a half, mm. oftentimes north of three and even up to three and a half or, or occasionally even a bit higher. So to think of you know, any investment grade asset with a yield of three and a half today mm-hmm. um, is is pretty attractive. Uh, just this morning, again, the high yield team was talking about new issue double B high yields coming with only two handle coupons. Sure, yeah. Meaning uh, it starts with a two something coupon, which in the high yield land is is really unusual. Now you talked about there being opportunities both in commercial and consumer ABS. Kind of a sidebar here, but but the consumer, especially here in the U.S., has kind of been the backbone to some degree of the economic recovery or cycle that we've been in for so long now. You know, there's lots of debate as to can that strength of the U.S. consumer continue? I'm just curious, as you are diving deep into some of these ABS instruments, particularly on the consumer side, um, what are you seeing with regards to the strength of the consumer? Anything that's worrying to you or is it more reassuring? Yeah, so trying to predict the death of the U.S. consumer has been a loser's game for <laughs> decades. Sure, yeah. Seriously. Um, and you're exactly right. It, it has, in the U.S., um, with respect to our GDP, become 
pretty lopsided mm-hmm. um, throughout the last year or so, meaning most of the other you know C plus I plus G components that we learned in mm-hmm. Economics 101 mm-hmm. are all kind of flattish right now, or, or maybe even not even that, but, um, but the consumer portion is what's holding us up. So it is a very important concern from a macro perspective. Where do we think that's headed? We don't see signs that uh, worry us just yet. Consumer confidence and expectations just this morning reported uh, very strong. Once again, uh, unemployment very low still. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the classic things you look at to forward guess where the consumer is going are all still pretty mm-hmm. positive. Um, that said, uh, it, it bears very close watching. You're, you're mm-hmm. exactly right. Importantly, though, you sort of have to take it from the bottom up as well, which we do, and that is think about the underlying fundamentals of the deals you own. Mm. And that's one of the other benefits of, of an ABS or any of those structured securities. Um, but ABS in particular, um, virtually every one of those deals, every underlying loan, whether it's a consumer loan or a commercial of some sort, you get regular, typically monthly remittance type reports that tells you how they're prepaying. Are they on schedule? Are they late? Are they in default? Whatever. Mm-hmm. And so you get a wonderful bottom-up picture of the deal. Okay, that's interesting. So on some of these ABS deals, you're getting monthly data, or I guess most of them you're getting monthly data. So that's 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 really interesting just from an information standpoint in terms of getting an early steer on what is going on with the consumer. If you start to see things getting better or getting worse, maybe you're seeing that months potentially in advance before it would come out in a quarterly earnings of a corporate issuer. Exactly. So let's turn our attention to emerging markets here for a minute. You mentioned up front that EMD is an asset class that you consider as part of a IG uh, portfolio. Um, you know, Bearings is quite active up and down the EMD spectrum, whether you're talking about credit ratings or different sub-asset classes, sovereign, local currency, corporates, et cetera. Um, tell me how you think about uh, emerging market debt in the context of an investment grade allocation couple of key thoughts with respect to IG in the context, excuse me, EM in the context of IG. First, maybe definitionally, it goes back to this idea that IG is not bound by this one thing that traditionally it was IG corporates. Mm. Um, there are lots of other asset classes, asset types that fall into the high grade investment grade space. And that includes some emerging market countries and companies. Um, so it's this definitional idea of expanding to things that are still very safe but just don't happen to be in developed market economies, if you will. So, you know, we're not for our multi-credit IG portfolios going to be buying anything like Argentina or Venezuela yeah, or, right. sure. or the kind of names that are typically associated with the classic EM mm-hmm. stress. Yeah. Um, are you actually buying sovereigns in in the EM and the IG multi-strat portfolios, or is it more typically as corporates? The corporates, okay. And, and really, what we're trying to, to leverage there is this idea of you know, are we getting a better corporate risk premium? In a, in a U.S. type company, perhaps. And most of them, by the way, have tremendous global exposure. Like, yeah. I mean, we're, we're really viewing these corporates that we're buying almost as a developed market alternative mm. because many of them are, frankly, in countries that in some ways are more developed than not, sure. even though they still classify themselves yep. and yep. there's somebody's um, scheme as being emerging. So, so big global companies potentially um, punished to some degree for the jurisdiction in which they sit. What is that? Again, look like from a spread yield pickup. So what? What you know? If looking at a Pemex versus maybe a comparable company in, listed in the U.S., what kind of uh, yield pickup could you assume? Yeah, you, well, we, uh, you know, we bought a Panamanian bank the other day, which um, seven-year triple B. You know, again, three percent kind of a, of a number 
on the yield. And, and as I said earlier, you know, think of GE, five-year triple B at, at uh, low 2% kind of mm-hmm. a number. So mm-hmm. 50, 75 basis points over similar rated, similar maturity type stuff. Not everywhere, not all the time, mm-hmm. uh, but they can be found. And, and again, we don't buy just the widest of the wide in EM like we don't in, in any other asset mm-hmm. class too. We're trying to buy you know, a balanced book of uh, you know, some a little better, perhaps a few occasionally. Um, that we're more comfortable taking a down in credit view on mm-hmm. and, uh, and getting a little extra yield compensation as a result. So we've talked about adding asset classes that maybe would not traditionally be considered as part of an investment-grade allocation. We've talked about CLOs. We've talked about ABS. We've talked about emerging market corporate credit. You know, as you look ahead, 2020 and, and beyond, and you think about managing these types of portfolios with exposure to different investment-grade rated asset classes, what keeps you up at night? What could go wrong? You know, what is what is the kind of big thing lurking out there that worries you the most? Yeah, in IG, it's always what you don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've had a great uh, education, once again, here in 2020, of that phenomenon, mm-hmm. meaning the two things I just mentioned a little while ago that nobody saw happening. Yeah. You know, de-escalation of... Iran, USA, and an escalation of virus yeah. uh, is, was on anybody's radar screen. Now, how that plays through into the various economic you know, forecasts and then reality, um, we're going to have to wait and see. Yeah. Um, but um, that's a big one. The other one we're paying a lot of attention to here in the U.S. is earnings around corporate America. Because mm-hmm. it, one, it's a leading indicator about growth generally, but also um, you know, for corporate America, that's what drives typically um, the health of the corporate bond market. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, we're, we're trying to pay close attention to that. And we, again, we, we think things have come down, but they've probably stabilized. You know, the, the good news was we started 2020 probably on an economic upswing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most folks were adjusting their, their 2020 forecasts up. Um, most of the, the high-frequency indicators were starting to turn up. Mm-hmm. And so... Whatever does come out of the of the, the virus uh, situation, at least it's going to be hitting the globe, if you will, when it seems like we were right. way up, not down. Right, right. Yep. <laughs> so um, chances are it's going to be an idiosyncratic type problem that bites us in the IG space. And the mm-hmm. best way you, you get around that is through, again, good research, proper diversification, and just don't be a hero. You know, you want to make sure your positions are, are not large enough to, uh, to destroy your yeah. performance. Now, you didn't mention the Fed or the impending election as risks. Yeah, well, there's wonderful uh, examples of things that are just incredibly difficult to get right. Yeah. I mean, 2019 was a perfect example of the folly of forecasting. Yeah. Um, you know, no one expected virtually any of the events that happened last year to have happened if you'd have pulled them all at the beginning of last year. Um, you know, the Fed, I would say generally, we don't tend to position around interest rates or duration based on how we think the Fed is going to act. How do, um, how do you position around interest rates? Um, for our multi-strap portfolios, we tend to use a rules-based approach to duration. Mm-hmm. So look at the slope of the treasury curve on the front end, and if it's steep and you're getting paid, you take a little more duration. If it's not, you don't. So uh, it's something that we minimize the, the volatility that comes from owning duration own a little bit of it if you get paid. Otherwise, you don't. Try to add value through yield and carry. And by the way, you know, that idea of, of carry tends to be high. And, you know, we've been saying this for a while. I think there's been some recent academic work that's helping support this. At times when treasury yields are relatively low is times when credit carry tends to be relatively high. Okay. So with those portfolios that I'm talking about, the multi-credit strategy portfolios that we run, 
these days are benefiting from the carry of all this spread product that we're talking about, mm-hmm. um, less so from from pure interest rates. So um, it looks like the Fed's going to be asymmetric. They're probably going to encourage lower rates if they need. They probably don't want to see rates go up a lot. Mm-hmm. In and of itself, that might be a risk, to be perfectly honest. When no one in the world thinks rates are going up, sure. you probably should take the other side of that mm-hmm. trade. Mm-hmm. Um, but net, 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 net you're, uh, you and the team are not basically taking big swings at trying to predict which direction rates are going to go in. No, it's too hard to too hard to get it right yeah. over time. We, can, we prefer to make money uh, in things that we think we are pretty good at, and that is uh, finding good companies, credits, and, and issues and issuers, and just adding that uh, incremental yield and small, stable bites over time. All right, last word. Anybody who is uh, thinking about their investment grade allocation for 2020, any last piece of advice you would leave them with today? In a late cycle type of world where you're trying to protect your principal and maybe add a little bit of income, uh, there's a tremendous amount of, of uncertainties out there. Everyone yeah. said that last year. They're saying it again sure. this year. Yeah. Um, it's hard to, to lay out a strong case for why everything's going to be perfect, and it usually never is, right? <laughs> um, there's a lot of ways we can point to downside risks or headwinds or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. So I think with uh, yields low and spreads on the tighter end of history, pretty much across asset classes, uh, some more than others. I think uh, these are the days that you're supposed to be thinking about income safety and stability, and not just ours, but but IG in general tends to be a, a good habitat for those kind of environments for people to be thinking about. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, wise words. Dave, appreciate your insights as always. Let's not wait another year till we do this again. Thanks so much. You bet. Thanks for listening to episode two of the second season of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you're the first to hear about our latest episodes, including the next one, where we'll break down the U.S. presidential election from an investor standpoint with my guest, Dr. Christopher Smart, head of the Barings Investment Institute. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.